I'm sitting in a really confused, confusing environment, right? So I've got like a horror t-shirt on next to a Christmas tree mm. uh, in November. <laughs> it's a very weird setup in my house right now. Well, it seems like you, you're using November to bridge the gap between Halloween and Christmas. It makes perfect sense to me. Well, normally I would be horrified, horrified if somebody put a tree up in November. And the only reason I did it is A, because this is the first time I've done it in this house. And B, is because uh, they delivered it and it was just sitting in a box with all the decorations. And I was like, well, it's either going to sit there in the box in all the decorations or I can put it up and then put the box in the attic so it's out the way. Mm. So I kind of went for the latter. You, I mean, you could have put the tree still in box in the attic, I guess. But then were you mm. thinking, but then I'd have to get it down again. the attic? Yeah, yeah exactly. So I just went for it. Yeah, I'm going to condense the amount of attic trips I have to do in a year. I'm no fool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I see your logic there and I appreciate it. Yeah. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with this story. Begins on the island of Trinidad. Exciting. I know. We this are going is a British the... podcast. Yeah, we're this... going to the Caribbean, though. Because on May 1st, 1917, in the capital city, Port of Spain, nice British name so... for a city. <laughs> okay, right. A boy called Philip Louis Ulrich Cross was born. Though everyone just referred to him as Ulrich. Which I think is a shame, because I think PLU would have been a great nickname. You know, it sounded a bit like of... an American college. The you know that Psy P S Y that sang Gangnam Style. That's oh yeah, what, yeah, that's where my mind went. So imagine, um, but he is definitely Afro Caribbean. But if you want to imagine him as an Afro Caribbean version of Psy, why not? I do Gangnam Style. At the time, Trinidad was a British colony, and had been ever since the island had been surrendered by the Spanish to a British fleet led by Lieutenant General Sir Ralph Abercrombie. And Fitch. Yes, in 1797. So, basically, British fleet being led by Lieutenant General Sir Ralph Abercrombie were sailing past um, Trinidad at the time and went, that that looks really rather poorly defended. I bet if we sail up and say we want it, they'll give it to us. What did the poor people of... Did the people of Trinidad actually have a say in oh, the matter? God, no. Of course they didn't have a say in this. <laughs> They were just, they'd, they'd been colonised by the by Spanish. By the Spanish, yeah. <laughs> and then the Spanish didn't leave quite a big enough garrison, so the British just went, yeah, um, I think I think you want to give us a present, don't you? And they went, yes. To us, love yeah. us. Yeah, get on your boat and leave, and we'll just, we'll just sail straight in, and we won't even bother to rename the, the capital city. We'll leave it as Port of Spain, because yeah. that way people know who we took it from. We'll just, ang- yeah, anglicise it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, we'll just use. It's our not word. a Spaniard port anymore. It's no. Spain, Spain, port of Spain. It's still port of Spain to this day. The British saw the island as a means of increasing the amount of plantations they could develop in the West Indies, and mm. accordingly had increased the transportation of slaves to the island. Of course, they have. And even when slavery was abolished by the British in 1833, that's heavily quotation fingers there. Uh, it was agreed that on the island of Trinidad, slaves wouldn't be set free right away, because that's you know that's giving them too much independence too soon. 
in order to make sure that they could survive the rigours and the hardships of being a free person, the British were kind enough to offer to have them serve an enforced apprenticeship for seven years. So they've just rebranded it, Mm. basically. Well, it's it's a way of saying to the plantation owners, look, we are going to have to abolish slavery, but here's a seven-year gap. So you can find another group of people maybe you can exploit. They may not be slaves, but maybe you can convince some people from uh, a poorer nation to come over here and work for near slavery wages. I believe I'm correct in saying when uh, slavery was abolished, uh, I don't know if it was that year or when it was fully abolished. Anyway, so the slaves or the people that were enslaved were not compensated, but the people who owned the plantations and the slaves were compensated to such a degree because of their loss of earnings that we only actually paid the debt off about five years ago. Yeah, it was it was in this century. Yeah, it was it was just a long time to pay it off because it was the it, it added something like half the national debt again. It was ridiculous the amount that we owed to some slave owners for for you know the heinous crime of forcing them to actually pay for labour. They were like, well, I'm not going to make as much money. It's like, well, yes. In the same way, you know, a business in London can't really make as much money because they have to pay some wages. You'll you'll just be on the same footing as any business in Europe. But I just can't believe it took so... Well, I can't believe because mm. of the establishment. But uh, however many... It wasn't that many years ago. It was definitely in our adult lifetime that it was finally paid back. Well, yeah, it was government-backed loans to be able to pay the slave owners off and then those loans obviously just kept accruing interest and it was oh god and yeah in uh in british schools now it's obviously uh, it's probably a little bit different now because times have changed but we were very much told that slavery had nothing to do with britain as uh, in a history lesson we were we were told that it was the americans it mm. was them it Who was do you think them. taught them to do it exactly <laughs> but but isn't it funny how we were never told that we were ever part of that no, it's, uh, slavery Ever. was happening in the passive voice. In 1833, the British stopped it. Yeah. I, it, it's, it's funny because uh, you don't... I only learned as an adult how much Britain had to do with slavery mm. and how entrenched they were with it, which is criminal that they don't teach us about it. Awful. Well, I've got some more great news about the way we abolish slavery because as well as these apprenticeships for for um, slaves transitioning to freedom, we extended our loose definition of ending all slavery to the liberation of people on slave ships that were captured by the British. Okay. Because rather than just returning the almost slaves to their countries of origin and letting them get back to their lives and, you know, their families, it was decided that they should pay back the favour that the Brits had done for them by spending a few years as conscripts in the British Armed Forces. <laughs> Thank you, we're saved. You'll be taking us back over to Africa. Well, about that, you see, it costs... We still need you. Yeah, it costs us a lot of money, um, you know, to run these um, operations, to stop these slave ships. And um, as you can imagine, with much of our Navy engaged in this operation, we, we are short of men. So we thought maybe you'd help out. Also, you are on a boat and you cannot swim, so we're just going to take you somewhere else and give you a gun and point at people for you to shoot at. How's that sound for you? 
Good. Yes. <laughs> to be fair, though, the commanders at the time did bother to explain why they didn't ever ask the former slaves if they were okay with this arrangement. So they had they had a rationale all you know squared away there. Do you want do you want to hear the justification? Yeah, of course. Verbatim. They were all savages in the strictest sense of the word, entirely unacquainted with civilization and with no knowledge of the English language. Why would they? Why so, would they know English? Yeah. So there was no point in asking them if they wanted to be conscripts in an army because they were too savage to understand, which makes it absolutely fine. <laughs> there Isn't you go. Isn't it insane that obviously all this stuff that people have done at this period of time has had so much of a knock-on effect to some of the issues that we have now. Well, well, when you're talking about, oh, the entire world's got to work together for issues like climate change, it's like, why are so many countries unable to take the Brits and the Americans and, you know, all these European countries at their word? "Mm." (laughs) Yeah, because they (laughs) like The cultural memory of being screwed over for centuries... It's not even centuries. It's still like uh, we get lied to at every general election every four years. <laughs> well, I mean, I say you know it's been happening for centuries, and it happened within the last century. Like A you lot. say, it happened happened last week. Yeah, trust yeah. us this time. Go on, you know you want to. <laughs> There's a good boy. Now, unsurprisingly, this enforced conscription didn't go down well with the nearly 400 surprised new members of the 1st West Indian Regiment. (laughs) Surprise, you're in an army. They had been recruited between September 1836 and May 1837 and were now stationed in the San Josef Barracks, just outside of Port of Spain, Trinidad. Okay. Bear in mind, all of these men who have just been moved to the island of Trinidad were all born on mainland Africa. They were born on the continent of Africa. Okay. So they were born on the continent of Africa. They were put on a slave ship, probably destined for America. And some point just off the West African coast, they were liberated. And then rather than doing the short haul back to where they come from, the Brits just carried on the journey, <laughs> took them all the way across the ocean. A lot of them will have died on the crossing as part of this conscription plan. It's a power trip, though, isn't it? It's just that, well, we're, we're in charge here, so... Yes, we have three British officers with fine moustaches and, and 400 guns. members of a very confused new joined African army because I'm guessing the Brits weren't able to differentiate between all the different countries. Oh, no, they would have different cultures. just... Um... And never mind all the different languages and sub-languages within that and dialects. It was just, oh, well, you're all African, so you can all live together. And I'm sure there are no very deep cultural grudges that may (laughs) come out. Yeah, the British have got a lot to answer for. Within a month of starting their new enforced careers, over half of the African soldiers were so annoyed, they decided they really did need to do something to let, you know, let their anger be known. Led by a man called Dega, it's D-A-A-G-A. Okay. Though this was difficult, as I've proved, for British people to pronounce, so the officers in charge decided to change his name and just call him Donald Stewart. <laughs> and who are you? I am Dager. Donald. Donald yes, Fantastic. Hello. Right. In fact, you know, should we put a kilt on him? We've called him Donald. We may as well go the whole hog. Come on, guys. 
<laughs> but I'm sure, you know, anglicising his name didn't do anything to make him hate them extra hard. On June 17th, Dager led 280 fellow soldiers in a little bit of a mutiny. Things started well, and the group were quickly able to create a distraction by torching the accommodation block, which allowed them to successfully raid the armoury. Yes. Heavily armed, they then set off into the Trinidad countryside. Good. Unfortunately, though, this is where the plan fell apart a little bit, as Dager had presumed that they would be able to walk back from the port of Spain in Trinidad to Guinea in Africa. How far is that? Well, they were able to walk the first 90 kilometres. Okay. Uh, They were less likely to be able to walk the next 5,000 kilometres, which consisted exclusively of the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) Is a kilometre and a kilometre the same thing? Yes. So he he was not aware of the fact that Trinidad was an island. Uh, they could walk to the edge of that island, but then they had 5,000 kilometres of ocean to cross to get back to Guinea, which they weren't going to be able to do. What's that in miles? I can't do it in... I don't know. I'm trying to be as universal as possible, and I like base 10 measuring systems. Well, do you know what? In my head, so I was measuring... Uh, sorry, slight diversion, but I was measuring uh, a curtain pole, right, the other day, uh, for my door, and for, for some reason... Door? Were you putting up beads? Are you going 60? No, for the front door. I'm going to put a curtain across the door. Right. Oh, save To make it, myself yeah. feel nice and warm and stuff. Get a thermal curtain. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so we- in my head... I, and I don't. I, I know. I know why I do this because we haven't fully gone over to metric in this country. Mm. In my head, I was like, "Oh, a meter is sixty centimeters." It's not. It's a hundred, isn't it? But of course it is. But yeah. in my head, I was like, "No, it's sixty centimeters. That's a meter. It's, a, it's definitely sixty centimeters." And in my head, I just kept doing it. Anyway, I ordered the wrong thing. It wasn't big <laughs> enough. It wasn't big enough. And then it came and I was just like, oh, that seems small. And I was like, oh, that's 60 centimetres. That's a metre. And honestly, I had this conversation with myself for about 10 minutes, then realising that actually it was 100 centimetres in a metre. And I was like, God damn you, Britain, for not fully going over to things and having miles and feet and uh, stones and pounds and kilometres and this and that. I can't cope. Can't fucking cope. Why have one or the other when you can have bits of both? I know, and then I got confused. I was like, oh, I was like, yeah, there's 60 minutes in an hour. I was like, why is there not 100 minutes in an hour? And then I got really confused. People did try to introduce a base 10 uh, timing system. And for some reason, that was the one where everyone just went, no, no, no. Do you know what? We, we can we can work with an hour being 60 minutes. That's, for some reason, that works better for us. Because I'm pretty sure a foot was like almost 30 centimetres or maybe a bit more. We'll, we'll get into it off, off oh, podcast. Sorry. sorry. It's, it's okay. I mean, we've got a group of 280 confused African soldiers suddenly looking at the Atlantic Ocean and going, well, this is a pretty big lake. Um, what are we doing now, Dagar? And he's like... Uh, <laughs> we <"Hmm."> swim. <laughs> so, can anyone swim? Get on mm. your speedos, gentlemen. Of course we can't swim. That was the reason that we were on the boat in the first place. We didn't just <laughs> jump off. We were within sight of our coastline. If we could have swum, do you think we would have gone with these Brits? I wonder why we can't naturally swim like as humans. Oh, we can to a certain degree, but well, it's it, not like instinctive. Doggy paddle is, mm, but it's yeah. not going to get you that far, you know. No, especially when the waves are crushing over you. Yeah, and the the tendency to panic is quite strong. Yeah. Eventually, 
as they couldn't get off the island, the mutineers were rounded up, and the ringleaders were sentenced to death. Though when Dager was brought to face the firing squad, he removed his blindfold, placed a curse on all white men, said he didn't fear to fix his eyeballs on death, and then turned his back on them. Good. Which, I mean, in terms of retaining a bit of dignity in death, yep. Yeah. (laughs) I don't give a shit. (laughs) I shall curse you. Yeah. And good day, sir. I mean, I say that. Don't think that Dagar was a hero. Because the only reason he was on that slave ship is he was selling people to um, the slavers. And he'd gone onto the ship to negotiate the price. And the Spanish or Portuguese slavers, whoever they were, just went, you know, he's just another person we could sell at this stage. So why don't we just set off and we'll just put him in chains? So he was in no way a hero. You know, if if he'd have had his own way, all of those people would have got where they were going to and he'd have had a fat wad of cash. Yeah. But it was still a pretty metal death. Surprisingly, though, with this history, less than 100 years later, young Ulrich Cross, remember him? He's the, uh, the subject of this story, would you believe? Okay. He dreamed of joining the British Armed Forces, albeit of his own volition, and specifically, okay. he dreamed of joining the RAF. The RAF. Although Ulrich wanted to be a member of the RAF, his parents had other ideas. Ulrich was definitely the brightest of their nine children, and they had hopes that he would study hard and eventually become a lawyer. A high-powered job, job with status, so that they could lord it over the other families in the the suburbs in which they lived. Ulrich did study hard, and at the age of 11, he took the exams to try and gain entry to the prestigious St Mary's College, and all boys almost all white Catholic school, that only took eight black pupils each year. Okay. Not only did Ulrich make the court one of the eight, he gained the highest scores of any boy, black or white, who took the exam that year. So That's he could pressure for an 11-year-old, isn't it? Yeah, but imagine that. You can legitimately claim that you are the smartest kid of your age on the entire island. Mm, it's like, no, yeah. I, uh, we, we, we checked. I am number one. Uh, this is me. It's, this is me bragging. This is me stating a fact to you. It is official. I'm smarter than you. It just goes into the class. I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than you. You over there? I don't know how smart you are, but it's not as smart as me. Put the dunce hat on, child. I'm gonna go sit at the front of the class where winners sit because that's what I am, and you can sit at the back. Okay. He was an avid reader, and he progressed well in all the subjects he studied. It seemed that he would easily be able to become a lawyer just as his parents had wanted, especially his mother. Apparently she was the uh, driving force behind this. Yeah, she wanted to be proud of her boy and the family. And he'd manage it and life would be perfect and he'd buy her a house. That's why she wanted it. Yeah, it'd be beautiful. Uh, When Ulrich turned 13, his mother died. This naturally and understandably devastated the family. Then things got even worse when his father abandoned the nine children to start a new life in Venezuela. Oh, God, so the mum's died, and then there's these nine children. Yeah, nine children and dad, and dad apparently is like, well, I'm I'm going to need to get a better job um, to pay for all of you, so I'm going to try on mainland South America, going to go to Venezuela, and I promise, promise I will send back money. And he just went, and they had to move in with a neighbour, which is very awkward. (laughs) You know, it's just like nine children tapping on the door going, we're hungry. I mean, one... Maybe. 
But nine. She took them in. Aww. Bless her. I mean, they said she was very religious and she was quite harsh to them, but, I mean, nah. she did take in nine kids when she didn't have to. That's a pretty nice, genuinely Christian move. What was her motive? Did she get things? I don't I don't think we were at the uh, sort of state, you know, hand oh, out no, system. Oh, no, I reckon she was one... Of, she, she, if she was alive today, she'd be one of those people that, like, give homeless people, like, a pound or something and film it. And be like, guys, I just feel so humbled. I did such a good deed today. I, Look at me giving this pound to this homeless man. Even you if know you can do, do it, it without even, filming Even people. if she did it, you know, for the kudos it got her in the community, she did look after nine kids that weren't around. No, okay, fine, fair. You know, and I think she deserves the kudos because it's, it's not like, you know, she just sort of gave them a meal and then went, okay, off you go. She was like, she did take them in. She looked after them, made sure they had, you know, at least a bed you know, to lay the head on and a bit of food in the belly. But even with this genuinely charitable next-door neighbour, Ulrich hadn't dealt with the situation particularly well. He'd loved his mother, and he couldn't get over the abandonment of his father and suffered a mental breakdown. I mean, understandable. Mm. And would you believe that this made his schoolwork suffer? (laughs) I I can indeed. Yeah. I mean, who can't compartmentalise those two things? School and home should be completely separate. (laughs) One should not bleed over into the other. No, you should leave your problems at home. I've always hated that saying. Yeah. Like, leave your problems well, wh- at the door. Why? Why? Like, I'm a human being. Weirdly, my experiences bleed over into the way I am. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> I about am that. I am messed up. Thank you. By the time Ulrich was 15, he'd finally... He just deteriorated to the point where he had to give up his scholarship. He was only able to get a series of admin jobs from that point on. First as a copy editor at a newspaper, and then as a solicitor's clerk, before taking a minor civil service job with the Trinidad Government Railway. Okay. But while he had faltered academically, Ulrich did not give up on his reading. He joined a book club that specialised in philosophical texts, and in 1939, one of the texts they were discussing was Mein Kampf. Okay. Pros and cons. (laughs) I've oh. never read it. I, I would like to read it. You don't get put on any kind of, you know, watch list. It is freely available, don't worry. Uh, can you can you actually buy it? Of course you can. I'm going to look it up. You can buy it on Kindle right now. Well, I might I might do that. Ulrich, he bought a hard copy, because Kindle wasn't a thing. And after reading <laughs> it, he decided that he was very much against Hitler's worldview. And in 1941, after reading of the devastation of the RAF during the Battle of Britain... Ulrich decided it was time to rekindle his childhood dream and he joined up to fight the Nazis. <gasps> okay. He wanted to be a pilot, flying a yeah. Spitfire and shooting some Nazi bastards. Did it right like a 12-year-old girl like invent something on that that like changed the course of the war? Like oh, I don't know what it is. Was it something to do with like the weight shifted? Like she could add she worked out how you could add more guns onto it. It was like her dad was designing it, but then the 12-year-old girl like came in and was just like, no, if you do this, this and this, it will balance out correctly. And then they ended up doing it. I don't know, but we need to find out if that's true. Because if it is, why is she not celebrated? What a thing to... You know, you I'm, peaked no, early. That is a, if, that if at is the age of 12 you have helped to design the Supermarine Spitfire, you have peaked early. Yeah, it's definitely a thing. When the war had first started... The RAF didn't accept any black recruits. Of course. However, 
By this point, 1941, they realised that they could not be so choosy if they actually wanted a chance of winning, and Ulrich, along with 250 other Trinidadians, sailed to England to begin their training. Okay. This was the first time that Ulrich had left the island of Trinidad, and you can imagine it must have been one hell of a culture shock. Yeah, of course. Especially when you consider that he was originally based in Sheffield. Okay. <laughs> so it was deep in Yorkshire that he was he was stationed to learn learn his craft as an RAF fighter. And that's definitely a culture shock. Yeah. It, it's just you can imagine he's going up there and he's like so so how how often does it rain? Yes. Does it ever get warm? No. A lot. <laughs> Ulrich originally volunteered to be a pilot. And the men at the RAF, they said no. <laughs> Island boy from the West Indies? No. <laughs> We're not allowing you to be in charge of flying one of these things. So Ulrich, he accepted it with good grace. And he said, well, OK, can I be a navigator? And again, they said, mm, we're not sure we'll accept your kind of people to do that kind of job. He had to fight for two whole years before he was allowed to actually take up this role. You would have thought they would have taken people because they needed bodies. Oh, they needed bodies, but he wanted to be a navigator, and that was a job that required skill and precision. Oh, and of course, people of uh, different races don't have that. Basically, their argument was, you can't... Despite all of the evidence of all the tests you're taking, all of the evidence of you know, your entire academic career where you were up until a breakdown, very high flying, mm, you're still not from the right part of the world. <clears throat> Eventually, though, after they'd run out of practically any other bodies, he was given the job of a navigator in a mosquito as part of the famous Bomber Command. Okay. Which is quite a get. The de Havilland Mosquito, or Mozzie, was a twin-engine plane, and apart from that engine... They were made mostly of plywood. Okay. Which yeah, is a, a fun fact when you're flying one into enemy territory. Yeah, you don't need that. That's going to set. That's like balsa wood, mm. like set on fire stuff. It, it had no guns and was used primarily as a light bomber, able to carry a 500 pound bomb and was crewed by just two people the pilot and the navigator. Okay. In Bomber Command, these mozzies were used as pathfinders and would fly ahead of the main group of heavy bombers behind the enemy lines to drop incendiary charges onto identified targets so they'd light things up. This greatly increased the accuracy of the bombers following on behind. So they... yeah, they're, they're the bombs that sort of, they went down and then they sort of exploded when they were down there, weren't they? But then they set everything on fire yeah. around it. The idea was, we're going we're gonna to fly ahead at an incredibly low altitude so that we can... Spot the, the thing that needs to be yeah. blown up, and we're going to light it up like a Christmas tree. So you can stay at a relatively safe height and drop your bombs where the big flames are. So we're going to paint a massive X on the floor for you so you can be more accurate. Yeah. In order to achieve this, and I said incredibly low, they had to fly at around 50 foot. Oh, Jesus. So, you know, there were trees that were higher than they were Yeah, flying. yeah. And they had no support. So the main bombers had um, sort of a phalanx of um, fighter jets. To... Okay, and we've got, we've got obviously, anti-aircraft gun as well mm. going off, I'm assuming. Well, I mean, they can't fight, fight back. So... No, I know. But like, if they're getting shot at from the ground, they're going down. 
But the other thing is, as a result of the fact that they're flying so low, once they dropped their bomb, they only had a matter of seconds to get out of the way before it exploded. Oh, gosh, yeah. Because they're so close to the ground. It's like when you're dropping a bomb from 10,000 feet, it's... Yeah. For them, it's like, drop it, get the fuck out of here, quickly! Apparently, it was... So you'd hear uh, you hear story from the Blitz and stuff, and, and uh, you'd hear that whistling sound. Mm. And people said when it stopped, that was the scary part because it was just about to go off. <laughs> like the whistle would kind of like come to an end, and it was like silence, bang. Like <laughs> I, now, I find out how close to me it landed. Uh, shit! This house used to have a wall. <laughs> oh god, it must have been terrifying, man. This is why I'm glad I, you know, I don't live in London because if bombs ever do start dropping, you've got to assume that's where they'd start. Uh, yeah, possibly, unless they want, I don't know, something. They're not. Well, actually, we've got a power plant here. Well, it's, it's a nuclear power plant. Yeah, in Heesham. Yeah. Yeah, that's Crap. where they'll they'll go. I'll oh, be all right. That's fine. I mean, now I won't. I won't be all right. I won't be. Are you too close to the docks? No, there's no docks around here. <laughs> <laughs> not that, yeah, but you haven't signed the official secrets act, so you're not allowed to know about those docks. Uh, I've said too much. Yeah, now, Trident's up here somewhere. Because it was so high risk and such a high pressure thing. Because basically, if you you know tagged the wrong building or the wrong complex, all of those bombs were going to be wasted. You know, if you accidentally drop it on some random farmer's barn, you know that you have wasted thousands of pounds of munitions that are then gonna carpet bomb this poor farmer i just want to milk my cows but due to the stress that was associated with these missions aircraft crews were only expected to fly 30 of them before taking a break okay so it's like you you do your 30 over two months that's it you you take time you take another role maybe we can't expect you to keep doing it at 30 missions ulrich was offered the chance to take up a teaching role but he, yeah, no, I'll, I'll keep flying. So he chose to keep flying. I don't like flying. After 50 missions, Ulrich was offered the chance to transfer to a job in the Met Flight Division. Okay. Flying around in the daytime to study weather patterns and cloud formations. Again, okay. he chose to keep flying the very, very dangerous bombing missions instead. Overall, he flew 90 of what were arguably the most dangerous type of mission that a navigator could take part in, three times what had initially been expected of him. Uh. He was rewarded with both the Distinguished Flying Cross in 1944 and the Distinguished Service Order in 1945, attaining the rank of squadron leader as the only West Indian in his entire squadron. Okay. Which, as you can imagine, made Ulrich the poster boy for West Indian servicemen. Yeah. Because he'd, he'd shown that he could do what any other navigator could do. He could do it better for longer. He was just in all ways nah, superior. He's going to get discriminated against, isn't he? Well, not at first, because he was interviewed on the BBC for the Caribbean Voices show in 1943 by Una Marson, okay. the first black producer in BBC history who will definitely get her own episode in the future. So what year was this? 1943. Okay. So this was while he was deep in it. Yeah, he he took the time one of his nights off and he went down the BBC to to film an interview because you know he was young he was clean cut he was everything that the Caribbean community wanted to sort of 
showcase. Yeah, look at so... us. We are civilized. We are brave. We are dependable. Ulrich is all of these things. Look at this man. This raw sexual magnetism in a flight suit. Do we know what it looks like? Are there photographs? There are many photographs. You can uh, you can Google at your leisure, and you what will is very much enjoy. Name? Cross. Cross, and his first name again, please. Ulrich. Ulrich. That's a nice name, isn't it? It is. I know you said it a million times, but names have never stuck in my head ever. Demobbed in nineteen forty-seven, Ulrich decided to return to Trinidad. He was welcomed as a hero and decided he would ask the governor, Sir John Valentine Winstar Shaw. <laughs> nice name. Yeah, just, you know, apparently he was from Derby. I'm thinking oh, okay. that, that name would stand out in Derby. John Valentine <laughs> Winstar Shaw, please. Mm. In, can you do a Derbyshire accent, please? I cannot. But he decided he'd go to this man from Derbyshire to ask for a grant to be able to study law and finally become the lawyer that his dead mother had always wanted him to be. So I risk my life for the Empire. The least now you I'm, can do is pay me through law school, sir. I'm going to make Mother proud. Mm. I'm so sure he wouldn't have spoken like that. But, no, no, yeah. he did not. I th- we've, we've made him into a cockney. Um, I make everyone into a cockney. Well, Sir John, he thanked Ulrich for his service, but he replied that Trinidad actually had enough lawyers and that mm. he wasn't about to provide public money public money to train up yet another one. So Even though this guy was a hero. Yeah, he said, yeah but I'm not going to waste. I am a custodian of the taxpayer's purse. I'm not going to throw money just so we can have another person chasing ambulances around the island. Absolutely not, sir. Understandably shocked by this snub, Ulrich decided to head back to England because surely the English would acknowledge the sacrifice he had made and would be willing to support him now that he was re-entering the civilian world. After all he'd given up for them, the risks he'd taken to protect no. the motherland. No. What do you mean, no? They absolutely would have shunned him. Well, yeah, because this was 1947. The war was over, and the British were not quite as welcoming as they'd been when they mm. actually, you know, kind of needed their colonial We don't, we don't, need, we don't need you anymore. Yeah, yeah we take goodbye. You you did the thing we needed. Now now go away. Yeah. Mm. And actually, send 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 your resources and money back though. Mm. We d- we don't want you. We want the things that are yeah. on your island, and we want it cheap. So come on. Ulrich was forced to again take basic admin work. This time in the colonial office. But, Is he in England still? Yeah yeah he's in London working in the colonial office. Not in Sheffield. No, 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 no. He he never went to the north again, as far as I know. <laughs> I mean... I shall never go above Birmingham. The people up there, are, I don't understand them. They are heathens. <laughs> they are savages. They are. And um, we're proud of it. But yeah, he, he ended up having to just take another admin job. So he'd been working admin jobs, just dead-end jobs... He decided, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my chance. I'm going to join the armed forces. I'm going to show what a stand-up, honourable guy I am. And then when I come out, my, my fortunes will have changed. And he went straight back into another admin job. He may as well have not bothered, as far as the British were concerned, yeah. in terms of the respect they showed him. They don't care, do they? Well, they don't care, but Ulrich cared. And he still mm. had a dream to make his mother proud. He'd, he'd met his own dream of becoming an RAF, you know, soldier. He'd fought, he'd got his military medals. Now he needed to fulfil his mother's dream. 
So he was using the money from his admin job to pay for his own law studies. What a a hero. He persevered working night and day over the course of 14 months. And in January 1949, he was finally called to the bar. Yes. This was when he discovered that no law firm in London was quite ready to hire someone from the Caribbean. Oh, for God's sake. So he was technically able to become a lawyer. But no one would No one would hire him as a lawyer. So, but... But I proved I can do it. It's like, mm, yes, you did, but... We don't want your type yeah, here. We, we can hire who we choose to hire, and we do not choose you. So I'm sure there's somebody else. Maybe maybe if you go back to, was it Trinidad? The they port might... of Spain. Let's <laughs> go back to the port of Spain in Trinidad, and they might give you a job. But we can't, dear boy. I can imagine them like really belittling him and talking really loud and really (laughs) slow. Oh God, that's it's funny because it's very true. Yeah, he was forced to head back across the Atlantic Ocean for the fourth time in order to gain some actual experience as a lawyer, working as legal advisor to the Comptroller of Imports and Exports back in Trinidad. Okay, so he's he's actually getting to do some lawyer things. It was you know, which is good. It was business law. It wasn't exciting. It was, you know... It was something, though. Yeah, it was something. Though, understandably, for someone who'd found attaining even this modest position such a struggle, despite his natural intelligence and superhuman work ethic, he also began moonlighting as a lecturer in the history of trade unions and trade union law. Is there anything this man can't do? (gasps) Okay, I like where he's going. Yes, power for the people. Well, naturally. I mean, if anyone's ever suffered... Due he's to perception. shunned, yeah. Yeah. He's he's proved in every way that he is able, that he is he can do these jobs and that he should be trusted with them. And yet still, people he knows he's superior to are getting opportunities over him. Mm-hmm. It's because time to of... unionise. Yes. Of course it's time to unionise. Up the workers. After doing this for four years, Ulrich hoped that he would now have the credentials to be able to return to London and finally get a job as an actual lawyer. So he's not going over there and going, I've passed the bar. He's going over there and saying, I've passed the bar and I've been working diligently for four years dealing in business law as, you know, the assistant to a comptroller. It's, yeah. I can show that I can do the job. Got yes. the practical skills. He was disappointed. And we're in the 50s now. Uh, we're just starting the 50s, yeah. Yeah. Instead of working as a lawyer, the one thing he wanted to do he ended up working at the BBC, of all places. Okay. So, yes, he took a job as a producer of Caribbean Voices from 1953 to 1957. And during this time, he met two fellow Trinidadians, historian C.L.R. James and leading advocate for pan-African independence and paid-up socialist George Padmore. Yes, socialists. He was also a member of the Communist Party of America. Okay. Ulrich Cross listened with interest to the idea of African countries working together to shake off the yoke of colonialism. And it is likely that he related to that idea as, as long as Europeans were in charge, there would always be a limit to what non-white people could achieve. And Ulrich knew this firsthand. I mean, it sounds quite familiar, to be honest. But it wasn't theoretical for him. It was, no, actually, my lived experiences. Mm, I've been discriminated against by the white man. Even though I am a qualified human. Uh, I'm a qualified lawyer. 
I teach in universities. Who is smart. I was a navigator in the RAF who flew more missions than anyone else and won multiple medals. And yet I'm still discriminated against just because of my skin colour. Seeing that he had piqued Ulrich's interest, Padmore then mentioned that he was working closely with the Prime Minister of Ghana, Kwame Krumah, who had managed to get the British to agree to making the colony an independent dominion within the British Commonwealth. This meant that it would be able to essentially govern itself. The setting up of a new system of governance would naturally need many motivated lawyers. What do uh, what do countries in the Commonwealth gain? Like what what is good for them about it? Because I know it's, it's kind of like a it's basically a rebranding of empire, isn't it? I know, obviously. I think at this point it's just a cultural thing. So there's no. Because I know a lot of people are like. I don't think yeah, there's a Commonwealth trading block. But there's no like funding or anything that goes into it. There may maybe. be. We'd have to look into it. I mean, there's the Commonwealth Games. Come on. Uh, That's yes. Fun. It oh. wasn't fun when it was in Glasgow and I was stuck behind a uh, uh, a race. Oh, I don't know what I was stuck behind. I was stuck somewhere. I couldn't get somewhere in my car, so I abandoned it in the middle of the road. And then I went on to win that race. Still don't know what it was. <laughs> and I, I have a gold the... medal. <laughs> but yeah, it basically, it was as much independence as the British Crown were willing to give at that time, which was the start of that kind of, um, we know that we can't actually maintain the empire anymore because we're pretty much bankrupt after World War Two, but... We, we want to try and save face. So we'll say that you're an independent dominion within the Commonwealth. When what we really mean is you're independent. We've just rebranded. Yeah, we've rebranded what independence is, which yeah. makes it seem like we still uh, have have a say in how you're ruled. Padmore then asked Ulrich, would you be interested in taking a position in the new government of Ghana? Is that something, you know, it would be as a lawyer, yeah. if that helps. Ulrich realising he'd hit yet another glass ceiling within the BBC, gratefully accepted. Good on him. And after starting out as an advisor to the Prime Minister, he took on the role of Senior Crown Consul. He's done pretty well for himself, considering he's had all these blocks Mm. sort of thrown at him. He's obviously a smart chap. Mm. And then someone's come to him and said, look, we're, we're looking to create a series of independent states in Africa who will all work together so there'll be um, cooperation between these states and we can be as powerful as any European state if we work together. And it means that all of those resources that they've been taking from our countries and taking from Africa and making massive profits on, we can finally start to benefit from. Yeah. And, you know, Ulrich's been studying trade unionism. (laughs) He's experienced the rampant racism that he's faced. And it's not even over, you know having things shouted at him in the street. It's just the the quiet kind of racism where it's just, not you. Yes. No. You know, it, where it does, where they can paint it as it's not racism. Oh, well, he just wasn't the right type. We just didn't think he'd fit. I always think that with the Equalities Act as well, obviously, like, having to... Uh, sort of, you have to give everyone an equal chance. Mm. But you could you could still say to this day... Or where they weren't the right person for the job. Mm. Uh, and maybe they were, but the person that was hiring is racist. But do you well, know what I mean? It's, there's always going to be ways around it. You, mm. You've just got to change the underlying feeling. And I think we're getting closer, at least. 
Mm, I don't know. I think there's still a lot of work to do. Well, Ulrich was ready to do the work, and in 1958, he drafted a theoretical constitution for a United States of Africa that was presented to the leaders of Liberia, Libya, Morocco, Sudan, Tunisia, and the United Arab Republic that was made up of Egypt and Syria. It suggested that they could work together to spread independence from colonial rule across the continent in order to ensure that the natural resources of the continent were no longer being used to make profits for European businesses. So it's that we are stronger together. And if all the African nations agree to have each other's backs, we can slowly make sure one by one we gain independence and then it's all ours. And we can start trading with them on an equal footing. Although the United States of Africa never came to fruition, Ulrich was serving as Attorney General in 1960 when Ghana decided to join in with the most popular national holiday celebrated across the world. Independence Day from the British. Yep. Yes. It is still celebrated in Ghana each year on March 6th. I wonder if I can... uh, I'll be able to celebrate that living in Scotland one day. Mm, Probably. The way the the wind's blowing. Yeah. Mm. Apparently, you're never more than a week away from someone celebrating independence from the British. I thought you were going to say you're never a week away from a new prime minister. I was like, well, that's 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 true true. too. (laughs) But I mean, if you really wanted to, I'd I'd just take every Independence Day from Britain as um, a bank holiday. Mm. You would only have to work like maybe two days. uh, You'd be working a month within the year at a stretch. I I think we should do it. It'd be a great way. We'd need to come up with a religion, you know, that, that... the Heath Recog- Green. Yeah, Heath that Green recognises every Independence Day from Britain as a, an important holy day. And then we'd be, we'd be golden. Mm. Having seen Kwame Krumah elevated from Prime Minister to President, Ulrich felt that it was time for him to move on to another country to continue the momentum. So, later on in 1960, he travelled 1,500 kilometres to the east and offered his services to British Southern Cameroon. Okay. French Cameroon in the north had already gained independence from the French in January of 1960, and Ulrich hoped that he could help South Cameroon achieve the same goal as soon as possible. He was serving as Crown Counsel in 1961, when another Independence Day from Britain was achieved on October 1st. Who was that? That was uh, Cameroon. So they uh, declared independence from Britain, and then immediately joined with North Cameroon to make the new Federal Republic of Cameroon. Cool. Ulrich stayed in the now united Federal Republic of Cameroon for the next five years. During this time, he earned two knighthoods and served as a member of cabinet. Okay. I mean, two knighthoods does seem excessive. I to me, would, I would never take a knighthood ever, not, even if I was offered it. I I would never get offered it if I was. I would say no. Does that extend to, like, um, Order of the British Empire? I wouldn't take anything. No. At all? No. What if um, King... I would be really insulting as well. I'd be like, how dare you? How dare you? What what if King Charles offered you a bacon sandwich? Would you accept that? Made with rare breed pork from the uh, Duchy of of Cornwall estate? No. Even if you put brown sauce on it? I do like brown sauce, but no. He's there with his sausage fingers... Proffering a bap. And you're no. going to say no to that man. I am. I actually think there's actually uh, a lot that King Charles and I would actually have in common. Mm. 
I like plants. He likes plants. Um, I care about the environment. He does. I like historic architecture, as does he. But um, I don't agree with the system that he lives in. However, we could avoid that topic for one dinner party evening, I feel. A dinner party where we're serving bacon baps. (laughs) Yes. Camilla! (laughs) I asked for brown sauce, not red. Get some more under the grill. (laughs) We'll do this right. Oh, Camilla, I'll give him my sausages later. Unfortunately for Ulrich, the first president of the new Republic of Cameroon, Amadou Ajido, he quickly started to show signs of wanting to keep hold of the power that he'd achieved longer than was envisaged in the brand new constitution. He started doing things like passing laws that allowed him to arrest political opponents, censoring the press, and working openly towards Cameroon becoming a one-party state. Okay. Amadou achieved this aim in September 1966, and a very disillusioned Ulrich, who was not willing to work for a dictator, having risked his life 90 times in order to remove one from Europe, he, he decided it was time to bounce. Yeah, I'm so done. He, he moved on again, nearly another 3,000 kilometres southeast to Tanzania, a country that was only two years old at the time, and was made okay. up from Tanganyika, a former British colony, that had sent over a quarter of all African soldiers who had fought in World War II and had celebrated its independence from Britain in 1961, and Zanzibar, who had achieved independence from Arab rule in 1963. Zanzibar. Yeah, so Zanzibar is now part of Tanzania. So it does still exist. It's just been um, subsumed into a larger entity. Okay. Not willing to become too involved in politics again, after what had happened in Cameroon, Ulrich agreed to take a post as a High Court judge and chairman of the Permanent Labour Tribunal. Because would you believe that having achieved uh, its independence from Britain, Tanzania wasn't really willing to accept advice and support from that area of the world and started to make relationships with countries like Russia and China? And it uh, oh, took on more okay. socialist views. Yep, yep. And the the Europeans who had exploited the people of Tanzania for hundreds of years were like, well, why are they listening to those people? Mm. Don't they don't they know that they're going to ruin their country? It's like you already <laughs> did. Yeah, it's just because they're on the other side. They're like, well, they're not on our side. These people ruining our country is theoretical. We have evidence you did it. <laughs> God's sake. But after only two years in socialist Tanzania, Ulrich Cross decided it was time to head home and see if Trinidad finally had need of his services as a lawyer. Please, come on. It turns out they did. Yeah. And with a resume as eclectic as Ulrich's, they immediately made him a high court judge upon his return in 1971. He the boss. He was promoted to the Court of Appeal in 1979 and finally became President of the Law Reform Commission of Trinidad and Tobago in 1982. Yes, mate. Where he made significant changes to the law in the country in order to promote equality and workers' rights. Because when the workers are united, they shall never be divided. Hmm. I mean, I feel like we need that now. Hmm. We need him. Where is he? Well, we'll get to where he is. Is he dead? In 1990... So we were alive at this point. Okay, yeah. He was offered a chance to excise the demons of unfulfilled potential in England when he was asked to return to London 
Oh, so now they want him. Yeah, but not as, you know, temporary admin or as a producer. As High Commissioner for Trinidad and Tobago. But because Trinidad and Tobago were a bit cash-strapped at the time, he was also asked to combine that role with being ambassador to both Germany and France. (laughs) Okay. But naturally, a man as sophisticated as Ulrich Cross could speak both German and French, so it wasn't that much of an issue. So he was based in London, but he also had to occasionally go to France... Uh, and he had to flit across to Germany to just, you know, when you talk about working hard, it's like, well, I'm doing three ambassadorial roles. He's a grafter, isn't he? Yeah, across three different, um, you know, countries. I'd do anything three to different get out languages. of work. <laughs> it's this desperate need to prove himself and to, to now that he was getting towards the later part of his life to be like, look, you did think of what you could have done with me. Think of what I yeah. could have done for you. If you'd have seen my potential in 1950 rather than 1990, you've wasted 40 years of having someone as dedicated and fabulous as me working on your side. Instead, I've been supporting the Red Menace over in Tanzania. I've been spreading communism. If you'd have embraced me, I could have been the poster boy of capitalism, goddammit. Exactly. At the age of 76, Ulrich Cross finally decided to retire. He returned to Port of Spain in Trinidad, where he received an honorary doctorate of law, meaning that he could choose between the titles doctor, sir, squadron leader, or professor. I would take all of them. No, I wouldn't. I didn't have enough time to put this in, but he achieved the title of professor due to the fact that no matter where he had been in the world, he had always insisted on being allowed to lecture to students at the local universities on trade unionism and other subjects he felt were of the utmost importance. Oh, I like this chat. So when he was in Cameroon and he was watching this guy become a dictator, he's like, okay, I'm just going to spend a couple of days at the university <laughs> talking to this bit. It's very important that you have a free press. It's very important that you have the right to strike. Guys, seriously, fight for this now. <laughs> Go. <laughs> then he was going back to work in the cabinet. It's like, did you have a good day at the uni, Ulrich? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were you What were you talking to them about? Latin. Latin. <laughs> just, just teaching them how to conjugate Latin verbs. Nothing seditious, I promise. Yeah. Oh, God. Let's hope he doesn't check the marking. <laughs> Even in retirement, though, Ulrich was a strong advocate for social mobility and for helping people to get on. He set up the Cotton Tree Trust, a charity that to this day works with some of the most deprived communities in Port of Spain in order to combat high levels of poverty and unemployment through counselling, self-help, education and training projects. Why is there no statue of this chap? I want a statue. I wouldn't be surprised if there was one in Trinidad, honestly. I want one, I want one in Britain. He does deserve it, I'm not going to lie. He does. Mm. Knock that Winston Churchill one down and put him there instead. Controversial, eh? We could definitely really? knock down the Oliver Cromwell one. I mean, who's yeah. going to care? Really? I always think the Churchill one's really ugly as well. Like I know he was fat, but they've made him like really fat. Mm. And um, I would be horrified if they put a statue of me that looked like looking that. Like, yeah, I'd be like, take it down now. Well, the problem is when you do that thing that makes you famous. That's the image of you because he wasn't yeah. always that fat. The no, problem was no. his iconic moments. That's what he looked like. Yeah. You've always got to be beach ready, babes. If you want to. <laughs> You never know when history's going to come a knock in and you don't yeah. want to be carrying that extra weight. Yeah, you want to be looking at trim. Yeah, I mean, if if I if something happens tomorrow and I become a national hero, I'm going to be 
forever cast in iron with dad bod. That's just the way it is. <laughs> I wasn't always this way. Got, what's your facial hair doing these days? I've got a handlebar moustache and a severe side parting. Have you? Send me a photo. I'm intrigued about the moustache. I will outpost something on Instagram. Come on, Wonderful. we've got to socialise this. I um, I cut all my beard off apart from my goatee. I have a goatee now. Nice. Mm, fancy, you know. Mm. I'm like Fred Durst. Oh, God. Is that really the comparison you want to make with your own facial hair? Rolling, 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 rolling. What? Have you got your cap on backwards? Uh, I quite often wear my cap backwards. And a and red one sometimes. <laughs> God. I don't, I don't know whether that's admirable or deeply, deeply tragic. Anyway, no. back to a man who was admirable. Let's finish the story of Ulrich Cross. What do you reckon? Yes. Okay. Let's. Ulrich also, in his retirement, remember, took on the role of president of the Royal Air Forces Association, Trinidad and Tobago branch, number 1075, in 2009. At the age of 92. Oh, yes! I'm so pleased. They gave him this purely as a ceremonial role. But naturally, he thought, no, actually, this is, a, this is something where I can do good. I'm 92, but there's stuff I can still do. Uh, and he managed to get a brand new veterans complex built within the branch's grounds to oh. ensure that everyone who had served had a place where they could go to find support. What a legend. So like, oh, we'll give him this nice, you know ceremonial role and he can just give himself this title and he went no 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 rolling his sleeves up there's business to be done here you've given me you've given me access to a budget now watch watch as i use it like, old rick no <laughs> don't do it i can i've still got some left in the tank and maybe that's what got him to that age mm. his drive in 2011 <sighs> at trinidad and tobago's 49th independence day celebrations Ulrich Cross received the Order of the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago, the nation's highest award. This was for his distinguished and outstanding service in the sphere of law. So that's only 11 years ago? That's only 11 years ago. You know, and he's in his 90s. And finally, he's forced the country that originally said... That shunned him. You can't... We've got too many lawyers. It went from... We don't even want to train you to. You are the best lawyer we've ever had. Here is here is a medal literally commemorating that fact. You have won at lawyering in Trinidad and Tobago already. Wasn't he like the go. best boy at school as well? Well, he, yeah, he. I, I don't know if he still mentioned the fact that he'd uh, got <laughs> uh, the highest you know, score on the 11 plus. I'm number one. Yep. <laughs> I'm still number one. It was, it was decided that I was number one in 1922 and... <laughs> And I'm still number one now in 2011. And I will remain being number one for the rest of time. Ulrich Cross, it turned out he was mortal after all, and he died at his home in Port of Spain on October 4th, 2013. At the age, the correct age to die, 96. So he's 96 Club. He is part of the 96 Club that I want to start because we've got Ulrich. You have started it We've now. got Angela. We've the got Queen. Queen. I kind of want David Attenborough but also don't want David Attenborough to fall into that. You heard it here first, everyone. He's wishing death upon our national treasure. I'm not. I'm just saying it would be nice if he was part of that club. He's only got until like January and then he's in the 97 Club. Ah, there's I no think. 97 club. Or whenever, whenever the Queen was born, April. 
I don't. I, why am I saying that? I don't know when his birthday is. I'm making it up. He's 96. We'll see. We'll see if he squeaks yeah. into the 96 club or if he goes on to become a centurion. It's one or the other. Either you die uh, at 96 or you make it to the treble digits. David Attenborough was a bit of a hottie when he was back in the day. Not back when he was doing Zoo Quest in black and white. Yeah. Doing things that any conservationist would very, very much find problematic. And that, to be fair to him, he's admitted. Yeah, like, I mean... Yes, I shouldn't have taken that monkey from its natural environment onto a boat and put it in a nappy and fed it. 8th of May, so he's got until May next year. I've changed my mind. I want him to live forever. Mm. Yeah. For all the Rick Cross, though, a memorial service was held in London by the Trinidad and Tobago High Commission in February of 2014. The then High Commissioner, Garvin Nichols, described Ulrich thusly. Justice Ulrich Cross was a man who not only served Trinidad and Tobago tirelessly, but dedicated his existence to the preservation of justice and democracy on an international scale. Yes, he did. His was a distinguished life, a life very well lived. Now more than ever, our society dearly needs role models like Justice Ulrich Cross. And that is the story of Ulrich Cross. I want to stand up and clap. I know, a man who did lots of good things for lots of good reasons. Fair play to him. I didn't stand up, but I clapped. And the source that got me onto this story was a 2018 film called Hero, The Extraordinary Life and Times of Mr Ulrich Cross. That's a bit of a cheesy name for a film, isn't it? I know, but it's a docudramatisation that was produced by Ulrich's daughter, Nicola Cross, which contains footage of Ulrich shortly before his death. What a chap. Uh, talking about the things that he did in his life. I want to... Right, so I'm trying to Google him. How do you spell? U-L-R-I-C. U-L-R-I-C. Ah, OK, yeah, I see him. What a legend, man. What a bloody legend. We need a statue of this chap. This is, this is what I'm saying. This is why everyone needs to listen to this podcast because there's so many characters from history now i know we do a lot of like dark murders and stuff and obviously we didn't uh, we didn't go into that today but these are people that are part of the national story uh, and our national story is obviously very one white sided thing and it wasn't that way. And I think as soon as we start introducing these characters and stuff into history, um, racism will slowly be a thing of the past and people will realise that actually Britain has never been this sort of metropolis of whiteness that everyone thinks it's always been. Mm. So this should be on the curriculum. Oh, I don't think Ulrich is on the curriculum, which is a shame. We've got Mary Seacole there. We did that. That's good. That's good. Maybe consistently eccentric will become on the syllabus one day. Well, what we should do is we should at least say that you can watch the film Hero, The Life and Times uh, of Ulrich Cross. It's on Amazon Prime right now. Cool. And if the story I've just told wasn't enough of a draw, the bloke who played the butler Geoffrey from The Fresh Mm -hmm. Prince of Bel-Air also has a significant role in the film. Uh, As an actor? As an actor, the actual the Jeffrey. actor plays um, posh English Jeffrey C L R James. 
I don't, why do I know that? A prominent African historian from Trinidad and Tobago. Amazing. And if you want to see Ulrich in his prime, if you want to see Ulrich in his formal military dress uniform, his 1943 interview on Caribbean Voices can still be found on YouTube. Oh, that's amazing. I'm looking at a photo of him in his uniform, looking yeah. very dapper. Oh, oh, he caught a rug. He looked fantastic. Oh, he did. He did. Apparently his nickname was the Black Hornet. Oh, he's a bloody legend. That's what he is. Mm. I'm glad that we've actually done an episode where you've come to like the protagonist. Because mainly the protagonist, when we do episodes, is a person who was hung for something, <laughs> something horrific. It's like, and then he died. And only after they you know, searched his house uh, posthumously did they find the extra 17 baby skulls. Hmm. So it's nice to do one where it's like, he lived and died a hero. I bet people weren't expecting that from an Ollie episode. <laughs> Keep you on your toes. Yeah. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.